welcome to the Girl Tries Life podcast, where we show you that women are capable of absolutely incredible things with the right tools, strategies, and mindset in place. I'm your host, Victoria Smith, and today on the podcast, we have a very special guest, Cassandra Arnold. So I'll tell you a little bit about her in a second, but the Girl Tries Life podcast is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, which is powered by ATB. Now, this particular episode is brought to you by Straight from the CPA's Mouth, a new podcast series created by the CPA Education Foundation and funded by Heshi CPA Knowledge Center. Alberta's Chartered Professional Accountants, or CPAs, are experts on a wide range of topics and issues of interest to Albertans. Straight from the CPA's Mouth has discussions on topics that are important to you, from leadership skills and achieving career potential to financial literacy, I know we could all use that, and how to make your tax refund bigger, you guys. So whether you're a university student, a new Albertan, or a parent, you'll find something of value or on this unique podcast. You'll find straight from the CPA's mouth on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or on the CPA's Education Foundation website at cpaalberta.ca slash foundation. That's cpaalberta.ca slash foundation. This episode is also brought to you by Storylines, which is a podcast from women in film and television Alberta. Storylines highlights some of our province's most successful women in film and television, both behind the camera and in front of it. Host Sheena Rosheter is herself a film- filmmaker, and she has some deep and instructive conversations with trailblazers and experts in the field. You can find Storylines on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also find it at wifta.ca. That's wifta.ca. Okay, so today on the podcast, we're joined by Cassandra Arnold. I first met her a few years ago, I think now, at a local writers conference. And she had written a book about her time with Doctors Without Borders. And I was absolutely fascinated. In my traveling days pre-children, I um, spent a little bit of time in mainly Southern Africa, But I was always really fascinated by Doctors Without Borders or even like my family doctor who opened um, a practice or supported a practice in Malawi. And, you know, what it takes to, to go to these parts of the world where you don't have the same things available to you and you're operating healthcare on a totally different level. So I was really interested in the work that Cassandra does. And she's got a really fascinating story about how she started in medicine at the age of 34. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm 33 years old right now. So the idea of making a huge career shift and especially into medicine where it takes so many years to train and having a child seems like an enormous undertaking. But as you'll hear in the interview, Cassandra really not downplays uh, what it was like, but I think that was just her normal, right? And, you know, she had this dream and this vision and she made it work, even in circumstances that you or I might deem, you know, pretty challenging. So we talk about what it took to, to make that shift. We talk about her time with Doctors Without Borders. We also talk a little bit about, um, you know, how many doctors have been expecting coronavirus and sort of how long people have actually known about it and and her sort of uh, predictions for what may come. Obviously, you know, everything changes on a dime. Um, but it, it's a really fascinating conversation about how also these, um, these viruses and, you know, the pandemic plays into the environment. So it's a really fascinating conversation. 
She's also massively creative. Cassandra is a writer. She's an artist. Uh, in the show notes for today, if you go to girltrieslife.com forward slash podcast, you will find all the links to the many books that we talk about and the many projects that uh, Cassandra is also working on herself. And she's really embracing this um, next chapter of life, this post-medicine chapter of life with creative challenges and experiments. So I really thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and I think you will as well. Now, before we get to the interview, I don't, I, I do just want to let you know quickly that uh, if you've been a listener of the podcast, uh, Don't Just Survive, Thrive, Building Resilience During COVID-19, our group coaching program, uh, we only have two spots left. So if you want to snag one of these spots, email me victoria at stresslessladies.com. So if you're listening to the podcast for the first time and you're like, what is this? Uh, if you're feeling overworked, overwhelmed, exhausted, and then COVID hit and maybe that just dialed everything up a notch, uh, this is a program to help you stress less, live more, and build that resilience muscle. And yes, it's geared mainly around COVID. It's a six-week group coaching program, but honestly, these are skills that will last you a lifetime in terms of stress reduction. This building your resilience is something that you will be able to come back to again and again and again. You will bounce back faster and faster once you go through this work. So there's five key steps to building resilience, and we go through each one of those in this program. So like I said, it's a six-week group coaching program. It starts on June 23rd, and it goes runs from 7 to 8.30 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. You can be anywhere in the world as long as you can make it via Zoom, and if you can't make it live, we also do the recordings. Um, Honestly, so this is the third cohort. I've run it twice before. The feedback has been nothing but positive. This is a program that helps women to shape their habits to help them stress less, to proactively find joy, to actively uh, work to minimize the stress and sort of manage the challenges that come their way. So it's just, I've been so honored to do this twice already. And so we're on the third cohort. If you are wanting to snag one of these spots, again, just email me victoria at stresslessladies.com. The cost is $150 plus GST, which for six weeks of coaching, group coaching plus two one-to-one sessions is kind of a steal of a deal. And this is the cheapest it's ever going to be. The cost will be going up for cohort four. So if you want more information, you just have some questions, again, and email me, Victoria, at stresslessladies.com. Okay, I'm going to head straight into the interview with Cassandra, and it's going to be uninterrupted. Take care. Well, thank you so much, Cassandra, for joining me on the podcast. It's such a pleasure to have you. Thank you for inviting me. So I met you through the Alberta Romance Writers Association and had come across your book about uh, that you'd written uh, about your time in Doctors Without Borders. And it was just so fascinating. And then the more I learned about you, the more I learned you do so, so many things and you're so talented in so many ways. So I'm excited to dive into that. But I have to say when I was on your website and you were listing the variety of jobs that you have had in your life from worst to best. It was absolutely fascinating. But I have to ask, why is being an ice cream van driver worse than working in a chicken factory? Ah, well, the ice cream van didn't have really good brakes. And the town I was living in had a bunch of hills. So every time I was parked on the hill, the van was lurching, like lurch, lurch, lurch. And I was absolutely petrified that any minute now the brake was going to fail and I'd just be you know, careering 
down to my death like oh my gosh yeah. well I then I can completely understand it because you would think it would be an, a fabulous job <laughs> well and I actually made no money it was commission driven and somehow there's a skill you know that I didn't manage to acquire very well <laughs> I don't know what went wrong but you drive around the streets but I guess you've got to time it right you know yeah and I had to wear a little apron with Mrs Whippy embroidered on it and the kids would come out and go Mrs Whippy and I'd be like <laughs> for the love <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well I can see that um but given as I'm reading this list of all the different jobs that you've had I um as I mentioned was first uh learned about you and your time as a doctor in Doctors Without Borders it strikes me that that must have come a little bit later in your life did it yeah I started medicine when I was 34 so I had done a whole range of things and I was living in the beautiful Blue Mountains, west of Sydney, which I absolutely adored. Uh, my son was young. And um, I started working in the domestic violence refuge, which was run by a collective up there. And there were things that I loved about that. Like I really loved relating to the women and the children and the families and feeling like I was helping. But the other half of it was so boring. Like I was just paying bills and going shopping and I'm like, and I loathe doing this for myself at home and now I'm doing it at work. And I, I just, I think I really stopped and thought, I actually, I want a proper career. You know, I, I want something. And I tried a few things. At one point I enrolled in, I don't know, like sort of welfare university or distance course or something. And I was like, oh no, this isn't any good. And then randomly I bumped into someone in the street who said, oh, we're having a housewarming party. And my son was with his dad for the weekend. So I went to the party and I met this woman and she told me about, she was studying medicine and out of my mouth, completely unexpected, like most of the things I say though. Um, I, I said, oh, I would have loved to have been a doctor, but I never did science at school. And she said, you don't have to, they have a mature age intake at this university and they have their own entry program. And, and I, I, she, she said, why don't you try? Like you'd probably be brilliant. And I went home and thought about it. And I thought, well, what have I got to lose by applying? And it was interesting because that year I applied, they had 64 places and 1400 people applied. Um, and I'd actually arranged to go to England for six months to visit my family. So my son would get to know his grandparents and his you know, cousins and aunts and uncles and what have you. Um, and, and so I actually flew back from England to Australia for the, uh, on, paper exam we had to take, which was all a kind of lateral thinking creativity test. They've changed it since, it's completely different now. But um, so I passed that. So then I flew back from England to Australia. Each time I only stayed, I left my son in England with my mum. I just stayed like three nights. I mean, I flew there, did the thing and flew home. You know, it was extraordinary. Yeah. But I was 30 something, you just do stuff, you know. Um, so, so yeah, I got in and I, and I, I was pretty um, alternative, like, before that and into alternative medicine and stuff. So it, it was a challenge, but yes, it's like I'd always wanted, I'm, I'll skip to this other question because since I was 12, and I talk about this in my book about working with Doctors Without Borders, I met a, f a friend of my parents um, who was a missionary in Africa and he came to visit and he was telling us about it. And I was just like, I want to do that. I want to go and work in Africa. You know, and then, of course, I read Albert Schweitzer and, and other you know, famous books. And so, so when I did medicine, that's what I wanted. I was like, I want to work for Doctors Without Borders. Um, 
and so it was like a 20-year project pretty extraordinary because to wait for my son to grow up and um you know do medicine and get experience and and I, in the book, I, met, I talk about that story too. It's like, I finally went to the interview and they said, well, why us? Why not one of the other organizations? And I'm like, what? You mean there are other people that do this? I, I, it's like, I was absolutely blown. I was like, um, um, well, well, you know, you're the best, something, whatever, you know, but I was like, seriously? Yeah. <laughs> this, it, was, it was the most extraordinary, extraordinary thing that I got to be able to do in my life. I, I just am so grateful. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll dive into more of that in a second, but I, I think for a lot of people, so I'm 33. And so you're saying you got into medicine at 34. Yes. I know, I know so many people who would be terrified to change careers at my age. So it would have been the same for you. So was that at all nerve wracking or you just. No, cause I didn't have a career. I just right. been doing all sorts of stuff. I mean, I followed when I was married, you know, then I went, I, we went to Papua New Guinea as a couple and we came back, split up and I'm on my own with the, with the baby, like he was 18 months old when we split. Um, so no, I had, I, yeah, yeah. Well, I had never had a career. So this was a big step. And part of it was, you know, I want a degree. I want to impress my father. He doesn't take me seriously. You know, this deep seated, impress your dad stuff, a degree will do it. Um, yeah. Medicine will do it. <laughs> it works. <laughs> Um, so it just, it, it just felt like, what else would I do? And they asked me that in the interview, they're like, well, if you don't get in, what else will you do? And I was like, I have to get in. This is what I want. Like, there's nothing else that, that I've ever felt this way. So yeah, it was absolutely terrifying. And after the exams, I hadn't done exams, written exams for, I don't know, 15 years or something. I remember sitting literally pretty much sitting in the corner for about three days going, not a headache, but you know, my brain aches, like, mm-hmm. <laughs> just the stress of it. And then going back for the second year, going to the university for the first day of year two, I thought I'm going to throw up, but I thought, Oh, that's tension. You know, I'm, I'm mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's the, the easy side of it is you just go and you do what they say. You attend this lecture, you sit this exam, you know, you do this thing, you, you just follow the set pattern and I passed everything first time. I didn't, I wasn't top of the class, but you know, you just do it. it creative stuff's actually much harder in some ways because you have yeah. to self, we'll get to that. But so yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But, yeah. You know. And doing all of this with a young child, like before we started recording, I was saying how I had a long night with the kids and I'm quite tired, So, but I'm not going in and writing exams for medicine or saving lives. So what was that? I know, I know the question is out there a lot of like, how do you balance both? And I know it seems a very sexist question and I get that, but I'm truly always interested in how people balance both. Interesting because the first week in medicine, we had a kind of new intake party with the Dean and, and he was going around to all the students chatting and he said to me, you know, and tell me about you. And I said, oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm on my own with my six-year-old so, you know, I've moved here from the Blue Mountains to Newcastle and set up, you know, new life here. And he's like, oh, oh, well, when you have problems, make sure you come and see us. And I'm like, that, that, that made me pass medicine. <laughs> yeah. I was like, what do you mean when? <laughs> if, thank you, you know. Yeah. So after a while, I realized that a lot of the younger people had part-time jobs and, you know, they, they had to earn a living as well as doing the course. So I just kind of would just say to them, yeah, he's, he's my part-time job. Yeah. You know, it's equivalent. All of us have things that we have to do. 
apart from the course. You know, they were working in bars at night or they're working in cafes or they're working, you know, stacking shelves in the supermarket or they're doing whatever. Um, And he, the benefit of being just two of you is that we could live any way we liked. There was no husband who expected, Mm -hmm. you know, anything. So we had, we had the most wonderful time kind of growing up together. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, and sometimes it was tricky when they had, uh, they call them pupil-free days in Australia. I don't know here, but, you know, the kids don't go to school because the teachers are doing less at a class. Like, yeah. yeah. So I used to take him to the university with me and I taught him how to go. In those days, you could do this. You couldn't now. Yeah. I taught him how to go from our lecture room to the hall, like like the Q&A hall at university here. You know, they had all the video game arcade and they had, um, you know, uh, places to buy food so I'd give him some money and I'd go go there and you know I'll come and meet you there when, when my lecture's over and then we'd start to walk down the streets and all these random people would be going hello Jarrett and I'd go who's that here oh my friend from video games at university you know <laughs> so it was it was amazing and he he'd come to some lectures with me um he was a wild card he 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 is a wild child I mean he was Nowadays, they probably want to give him Ritalin or something. I don't know. But, so he wasn't the kind of kid that would sit quietly for an hour and just color one of those. <laughs> but it was, we, we had a lot of fun. And, and the, the beauty of it was that um, my university terms meant that I, we had the school holidays off together. And, and to me, I mean, he went to after school care, which he adored. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, we had those holiday times together. And for me, that really mattered. I didn't. I really didn't want to have the kind of job where we never had that, you know, or just yeah. a couple of weeks a year. So it, I think, I think it really helped just when I recognized that the other students all had other commitments as well. And I didn't yeah. feel resentful or hard done by. And I think if you're not in a victim state, if you see it as something just is, and you just deal with it as creatively as you can, then things work. Yeah. I love it. So you were saying um, that to get to Doctors Without Borders was a 20-year process. Um, So your son had to, you know, you had to grow up before he could go off and do these adventures. Was that time in between when you were working in the emergency room or emergency Mm. department? Well, he actually went to live with his dad um, for a year or two when he was nine. And then he came back to live with me, actually in my intern year, um, when he was 12. And then there was a very difficult patch when he was a teenager. So there's a lot I would do differently as a parent. Um, And there's a lot that was really good, you know, and he's fantastic now. We're really close. I'm very fortunate, but I had not realized when I took on medicine quite how difficult that would be. You know, I, I, I really seriously, literally was at the hospital for the whole weekend when I was on call. Yeah. And here, here I have a, a 12, 13-year-old, 14-year-old at home with me. And um, ultimately, he, he got into drugs and stuff, and it was really difficult. Um, really difficult. And there was a time when I had to say to him, you can't, you can't live in this house behaving like this. I can't go to work and come home, and you've had some wild party again with all your, you know, drug taking mates and we got burgled endlessly and of course because they were coming to the house weren't they yeah um 
So then he went to live with another family for a year. Um, and I saw him every week and I supported them with sort of, you know, money for board as it were. Um, and I knew where he was and he was safe. And, and I said, anytime you want, you can, uh, you can talk to me about coming back, but you have to stop. You, you can't come back if you're using drugs. That's just not, you know, not, a, not an option. I can't, I can't deal with that. And, and then, then he came back and then, and then it was interesting because then we ended up with one of his friends living with us for a year because the boy's mother had died and the grandparents were struggling with two teenagers. And so, so his friend came to live with us and then, and then I was working and then after about a year, I said to them, well, guys, come on, you've got arms and legs and heads and, you know, I'm the only one, you know, bringing in money. And then my son went to England um, when he was 18 for, I gave him a trip. So to visit his you know, grandparents and cause I hadn't taken him for a couple of years. I was like, I can't take you to visit them either when you're like this. That's yeah. Um, and then he stayed in England and finished his schooling and got a career and he still lives there and he's yeah. doing really well in IT. And so, so sorry, that's a long winded digression probably, but, um, but he paid a price for my, for my dream. I think is, is true. Um, I wouldn't not do it, mm -hmm. but, but I, I would have liked to have realized in advance that you can't just leave a teenager alone for a weekend over and yeah. over that, that they will, um, invite their friends around and, you know, things will probably go haywire. I was very naive. I was very naive as a parent on that level. But I think, um, like I hear this from a lot of parents though, especially when they're teenagers, all that they're telling you is they want their space and they want to do their own things. And yet the now with hindsight and all this research, it's showing that what they actually need is connection. But when they're telling you the opposite, like it's got mm. to be incredibly difficult to navigate that. Yeah. Yes. And in the meantime, I met, um, David, my partner now of 22 years, and he also had teenage son. We never all lived. Mm -hmm. He had a, teen, a twin, teenage son and daughter, but the daughter lived with her mother. And then his son ultimately got into drugs as well. Oh, we had, we have been through, you know, there's so much. It's yeah. painful. But those stresses are the hardest. Like, you talk about being a resilient person to work in emergency departments and doctors without borders and dealing with stress from that. And that's true. And, and that's a brilliant question, but wow, the stress of, of dealing with teenagers that are suffering because they were suffering so much, mm -hmm. you know, and feeling so helpless. That's the hardest thing. So how then do you, in terms of resilience, how do you show up every single day? Because I, I know I experienced depression. And so there's days where you just don't want to get out of bed. But when you've got kids, you know, it's a little bit different. How do you show up? And how do you care for yourself during these times when, like you're saying, it is heartbreaking? Uh, uh, from the medicine side of you, from, from the work point of view? Either. Or, well, I mean, as a parent, In some sense, you have no choice. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's your kid, isn't it? So you do you do what you can, um, and you know, and and we found a creative lateral solu thinking solution. I remember thinking, you know, in the old days, there were whole f big families raised kids. You know, I think this nuclear family thing is, apart from diets, it's the biggest failed experiment 
you know, cultures ever had. I mean, I mean, the idea that you put, you know, a, a, a ribbon and small kids and leave them alone in a house all day and expect that to work is just insane. So, um, so I think pulling in, you know, the, the other family that he stayed with and then, and then we did something similar for another family and then my parents stepped in. I think that's how, how it can work. You know, you look for support and, and you, you're prepared to, to think creatively out of the box. You know, what, what do we need? What can I give? I, I've run out of things to give. I can't do this. I, I don't, you know, I'm not the person that can help him. Like my father was brilliant in his life because his father wasn't, frankly. And, you know, that influence made a huge difference. Yeah. You know, but so allowing other people to support you and thinking outside the box, I would say. Is, is... And was it hard to ask for that help or was that help just offered? Sort of evolved. Sort of evolved. I didn't plan either of those things, um, but you know, he went to England. Then my parents were like, "Well, he could stay here. He could go to school." You know, um, yeah. Like, yes, okay, good, brilliant, thank you. You know, yeah. <laughs> um, and it's hard. It's hard yeah. to let go of control. That's the, the flip side of it. Is you, you, you want to be in control. You want to be the one who does everything, yeah. solves everything. You have to realize, no, actually, that isn't going to work. Yeah. Well, and it that reminds me of. Okay, I have a love for Grey's Anatomy, <laughs> which I know is not exactly the way it always looks like. But I, I remember, I remember there being this phrase about how doctors or surgeons, in particular, feel like gods because they there's the control of being able to, in most cases, fix something, and yet in emergency rooms in medicine in general, there are losses. You lose patients. Mm-hmm. You it doesn't go the way you want it to. I can't imagine what it is to have to tell a family that, you know, their family member has not survived. How do you get up after those moments? How do you bounce back? I did quite a lot of that. Um, I worked in a hospice for a year, which was, which was good. Uh, confronting but really rewarding as well but in the emergency context well in the hospital context I think listening and just going really slowly you know just give people time they can't remember anything you say anyway at that moment so somebody's going to have to tell them again later um in the context of Doctors Without Borders I I saw a lot of children die I did a lot of malnutrition work I did eight projects, eight missions. They call them missions because of the French origin. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did a lot of malnutrition work in Africa. And 80% of the children with Kwashiorkor died. And they died the most appalling, unbelievable, horrendous deaths. I mean, all their skin would fall off and they'd be just, in, you know, in, in agony. And then I would lie in bed at night and I would just think, well, if we weren't here, they would all be dead. You know, we, it's really just like, thinking about the, the good that you are doing, that it outweighs the, the hard, you know, the, the losses. But that, that was difficult. And I think, I think there are times, the times like when you put in that question, you know, if people make mistakes and like I talk about it in my book, One Child That Died, and I, I put, you know, I would have given anything to save him. And the hardest thing to live with is that he died in the first week of my first um, experience with MSF and if I had seen exactly the same child a couple of months later when I knew more 
there was another thing I could possibly have done that might have made a difference. But at the beginning, I didn't know that. So that was the hardest one in terms of, you know, mistakes and um, because because that most of the time you're like, no, we've done everything we can. And particularly in, in, you know, emergency departments in Western hospitals, you know, you've done everything you can. I mean, I mean, the massive team has used all of its technology and all of its knowledge and, you know, um, but I, I also have a poetry book about working in the emergency department. It's only tiny. It's like 17 poems, but you know what there, you know, I'm talking about people dying and the issues for the families. And um, I, I think there's a, okay. When I was a kid, I, I had a, my dad used to go fishing and I collected all the fish eyes and I wanted to dissect them and I had them in the freezer. But my mum found them and got really upset and she threw my fish eyes away and I was absolutely devastated. So there's this part of the, the mind that when you're a doctor, you move into that kind of scientific part of you, that curious, exploratory, uh, let me try this and see if it works part of you. And that's a different kind of energy to the emotional oh my God, this person's dying, this is awful part of you. You need both. And, and to be a really good doctor, I believe, first of all, you know, you, you want to connect to people and you need to be human and allow them into your heart. But in the moment that you're treating them and that you're being the doctor, you, you are in the other part of you. And then later, you, I, that's why I write poetry and I, whatever, to de-stress and, and help express those feelings and express that side of things. So it's, it strikes me that that's also part of the resilience, right? That release, that creative outlet, the mm. making time mm. for your, for yourself kind of thing. Yeah. Yes. With Doctors Without Borders or Médecins Sans Frontières, did you um, get to choose the places that you went or it's, how does that work? Uh, yeah, yes and no. Um, in the beginning, they always say, you know, your first mission, you get no choice and it'll always be like, at least six months and you'll be sent to a nice safe place, you know, where they've got a, a more long-term project. Yeah. But what happened to me, in fact, was they had the big meningitis epidemic in sub-Saharan Africa. And so my first project was an emergency project and it all happened very fast. Um, was in, was in Niger, which is the country just North of Nigeria. Yeah. Um, so, and that, and that only lasted sort of six weeks because we went and did a mass vaccination campaign and, um, so that that's primarily the what I talk about in the book for my first first experience, um, and then going back to the same place later. So as you get more experienced and you've done more projects with them, you you have an extent of choice. You know, like if they and I and I promised my son when I started, he was scared. He said, "Please, please, please, never go to Afghanistan." I'm like, "Don't worry, I'm not. <laughs> no way." Um, uh, my last my last place was in Iraq, so that was that was. I think by then both him and my partner David were quite pleased when I stopped. Mm-hmm. The next one would have been Ebola, and I, you know, I was like, "No, I'm done. Yeah. I can't. I'm, I'm getting old. My body doesn't cope with the heat. I, there's, I just, I, there's no way I'm going to cope with those um, full body suits and whatever. I just want yeah. time for the next generation." <laughs> but, so I, I remember my mum saying recently to me that. Um, something along the lines of based on your time with Doctors Without Borders, you had sort of realized that there would be another pandemic and that we wouldn't be prepared for it. Is that right? 
to be fair, I don't think it's necessary that I work with Doctors Without Borders. Most people in medicine have been waiting for this. Right. Okay. Like, like I've been waiting for this for 10 years. I mean, it, it was inevitable and obvious that there would eventually be a pandemic. I think there'll be another one or, or several even in our lifetime. Like this is very unlikely to be the only time, unless, unless the countries of the world really support the World Health Organization and really seriously set up um, the kind of systems that we need to have in place to stop it, which we're not going to go into politics, but which countries like the UK and the US have been busy dismantling. Yeah. So they've taken funding away from these programs. And the, 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 I was trying to find the podcast where I heard this and I couldn't, but anyway, I heard it and it was <laughs> legit. Um, oh, I think it's um, the virus hunters podcast, but I'm trying to remember where it comes from the BBC or the ABC in Australia. Um, they actually detected this coronavirus a few years back in a, in a cave in China, and they flagged it as one that was likely to be dangerous. But there is no project and no funding for people to really start to go, if this thing gets out, shows the kind of characteristics that we think could cause a pandemic. Yeah. Um, you know, we should research this now and start seeing if we can, you know, find a vaccine. But we're not set up in a world that would ever do that. Yeah. Like even even now, the talk of vaccines, and then it's going to be like, well, who's going to get the vaccine? Yeah, who's going to pay for this? You know, is it just going to be rich people in rich countries that get it? And then we're just going to say, like we do with the other diseases, like TB and and so forth. Well, TB is killing thousands of of hundreds of thousands of people every year. We don't have TB anymore in rich countries, so we don't care. Mm-hmm. And I suspect that coronavirus might end up being another thing like that, which is really sad. So as we record this, it's May 21st. What do you think our next, in Canada, our next 18 months is going to look like? <laughs> Good grief. Um, I would be very foolish to say anything definitive, wouldn't I? Um, no, and it, but I think I, and that's why I, I say I, everything changes, right? We have no idea. I'm just curious from a medical background. I mean, like, like everybody, I still go through week after week kind of going, oh, another, another layer of grief as yet another thing gets cancelled, like an event I was supposed to be part of at the end of September just cancelled. I'm like, whoa. Like we were leaving. We were due to leave this week, me and David, um, for Europe when we wouldn't have been back to October. Mm-hmm. all of that none of that's happening um i think i think this second wave thing is is going to be real um i think canada jumped on things pretty quickly and i'm really grateful that they did and shut things down or whatever i think we're going to go through probably rolling periods of you know more intense lockdowns and less intense lockdowns and because because us all staying home flattens the curve. It doesn't make the virus go away. So yeah. once we open up the airspace and everybody's flying around the world again, I mean, it, it isn't going away. Yeah. So I don't, I don't think we're going to end up with, you know, 70,000 deaths and it out of control because, because I think I trust, I trust what this country's doing in terms of a response. I think they've done very well, but um, it's not going anywhere. Yeah. It's just so interesting what you're saying about like everyone in the medical profession has just been waiting for this. And while yet the general public is like, sorry, what? Like, yeah. cause I was genuinely, and I've said this on the podcast before, like 
I don't know, in January, I remember my dad asking me, so what do you think about this coronavirus thing? And I'm like, eh, more people get the flu. And I'm like, okay. <sighs> well, I remember a friend asking me in January, are you worried about it? I went, no. Yeah. <laughs> so there you go. But I think, I mean, if you look at it, we've had, we, we had SARS, we had MERS, we had, do you remember Zika? Yeah. That was, that, yeah. I mean, Ebola, um, this just feels so much. You couldn't go. I mean, there are there are things there are these kind of diseases breaking out all the time. Yeah, and this could have been a lot worse. Like you 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 know by now that our naught number, you know how many people get infected. So I mean, COVID is like three or something. I mean, measles is is well over ten. Yeah. So if this thing was even more infectious, think about that. Yeah. Or more lethal. But then if it was more lethal, people probably would have shut down quicker. But interesting, I think, that richer countries are struggling because we're not used to suffering and we're used to doing what we like. Yeah. And we bitterly resent being told that we can't. Because I, I think you countries, places, for example, the countries I've worked in Africa, they immediately kind of went, whoa, this takes off we're, we're in deep trouble yeah you know they shut their borders they close things down everybody was there was one case, town i used to work in the congo um, i'm in touch on facebook with some of the the national staff mm -hmm. um you know they were like oh we had a case in our town so we're, we're all at home now one case yeah you know um because they know it will be will be a disaster so they kind of was we're like oh don't tell us we can't go you know well, and that kind of ties back because I've um, not to some of the countries you've been to, but I spent six weeks in southern six countries in southern Africa, and it it does feel much more like a community collective spirit there. Like you were just saying before, how like the madness of this idea of like one parent at home with children, like that doesn't happen in those countries. No, no. And so it's like we have isolated ourselves, and so we become more individualistic and not cognizant of helping like of the community as a whole mm, mm. yeah yeah oh anywho i it's gonna be an interesting few years <laughs> but <laughs> but you're right it is it is these layers of grief and loss as things uh change and we don't know what it is to, like i was saying this to someone the other day like one of the things of resiliency and, and managing stress is like having something to look forward to having a um, something in mind that you're working towards and that can be a bit hard if we're looking at the traditional goals we've had before i think this is the most amazing opportunity for the world to change what we're doing in terms of of, of the climate breakdown mm -hmm. um this is a huge wake-up call i think and and if we took it as such if we all kind of went okay what we were doing isn't working um the reason we're getting all these pandemics is because we're invading all this habitat. We're cutting things down. Think you've got your tree canopy, right? Up here, mm -hmm. you've got your, your creature, your monkey or whatever, you know, mm -hmm. it's never been on the ground ever. Mm -hmm. They have their diseases. We've never crossed contact with them. Mm -hmm. Go and chop that tree down. That thing's on the ground. That thing infects the loggers. Bingo. Mm -hmm. Like this is how, this is how all these novel viruses and things are coming are coming. And once they learn to cross into humans, like if, if coronavirus crosses into cats and dogs easily, <laughs> yes. it's already infected some. It's infected tigers at a zoo. It's infected at least one dog. So, you know, um, 
at the moment that isn't widespread. But yeah. imagine that we're never going to get rid of it. It's not. Yeah. And and we're going to get into contact with more and more of them. So, but I I think personally, I think we all live on this massive level of denial about what's happening in the world. And I think a lot of the depression people have, a lot of the the, the issues, is we know that what we're doing is destroying the planet. We know it's wrong, and we can't face it. So we pretend everything's okay. And the more you do that, the harder it becomes to ever face what's happening. And I think if with coronavirus we can say, whoa, you know what, uh, we need to change. And we can. I mean, look at all the stuff that's happened in the world that, that the politicians would have frankly outrightly said that is impossible. Mm-hmm. It's not impossible. We're doing it. So we could we could change what we're doing and avert the, the climate catastrophe to, to, to a degree. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we don't, things like a pandemic will be chicken feed compared to yeah. what's happening in the world. So, Interesting. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, it's, it's interesting. Um, so I want to touch on, like, you, you know, you were born in England. You talked about a year in Papua New Guinea. You've been to Australia. You've moved to Canada in 2010. That's got to be a constant, um, you know, moving from the Blue Mountains to Sydney. It's a constant reestablishing of what home means and what your community means. So how do you have an approach to adapting new places or what does that look like? On some level, I went to boarding school when I was 10. And on some level, I felt profoundly homeless. Like I've always had this sort of fantasy of a place that I would stay forever. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's going to happen because, you know, and, and late, you know, I don't know, the old people's home I end up with. <laughs> so, so I think there's two things I normally, it's like learning. I'm always learning things. And so wherever you go, you can get involved in learning stuff. Um, you know, I was in Papua New Guinea, then I was learning the language and going to language class. And then I was, you know, hanging out with people and volunteering. When I came to Calgary, I did quite a lot of volunteering stuff. I had a wonderful time volunteering at the zoo. Recently, that got difficult because of the extent of travel in my life. And then I was volunteering at grandparent reading at the Hillhurst Community School, which was also amazing. Um, and I think that's just patience. I mean, books have always been my friends. I'm secretly a bit of an introvert. I'm a chatterbox, but, you know, I, I can kind of be, if I've got a good novel, I'm happy. Yeah. Um, so it just takes patience. It, took, it takes uh, just but sort of being okay in your own skin, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, doing the art in, in Calgary in particular, I started art class this year, and that was fantastic. When It took me a while, it's taken me a while to find the right teacher. Like, I tried a few classes in Australia. I've always wanted to be able to do art, so that was a big thing to allow myself to start doing here. And you're such a talented artist, like in all sorts of different <laughs> mediums. No, I've, this is, I've looked at your website. I've looked at your Instagram. You're incredibly talented between that and like painting and poetry and fiction, like from Thank an you. outside person looking in, like medicine seems very analytical, um, you know, data driven. And then art is, I understand there's an art to a science, but are they as different as we think? Is it? Is no, it well, least? interesting because the kind of medicine I did is all about telling stories. I mean, I mean, there's a reason I wasn't a specialist cardiologist or, or, or respiratory physician. I, I enjoyed the emergency 
room and you know I, I i would for the serious cases obviously you do what you can you rule out things you get treatment in and then you call in the specialists who come with all their detailed small print knowledge and you know just made my eyes glaze over um but but a lot of it was about i love i love the that creative storytelling it's like people come to the emergency department there's things wrong with them you need to tell them in a way that makes sense you need to find out what their beliefs are what how they see things working in their life and and talk to them in those terms tell them a story about their illness that makes sense to them and then they'll fo hopefully follow the treatment if you just kind of go this is this do this they go home and they don't yeah or it's really important that you finish this course of antibiotics but they don't yeah. I mean, even I struggle with that because we all do. But but if you can find a meaning and a, and a, and a why, what, how, what does this mean to them? I mean, I did a lot of work as a locum doctor in all these amazing country hospitals in Australia. Oh, the people are fantastic. And this old farmer comes in, you know, he's, he's really sick with a, with a horrible chest infection. You know, he really needs to be in hospital. I'm like, you have to be in hospital or have intravenous antibiotics. He's like, don't be ridiculous. I've got a paddock to, to plough tomorrow. I'm going home, you know. So... Then I just have to be like, okay, writing the notes really clearly. I told him he needed admission, blah, blah, blah. He refused, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then it's like plan B. Okay, well, what can I give you? Oral treatment, some way you can get follow-up, you know, come back for me to look at you tomorrow, make sure you, you know. But the people are just fantastic. And particularly with Dr. Dirt Borders. I mean, the people I met and their, their approach to life and their just, just blows you away. Yeah. So I think, I think there's both sides of medicine. There's that. I, I wasn't a specialist because I was more into the people side of it, I think, than the, um, you know, really, really detailed yeah. sort of analysis. So what is this next phase of your life focused on? Is it focused on the art and the fiction? And mm, I guess. I mean, sometimes I really miss medicine and I'm really sad. If If I was still in Australia, I probably would have continued, but was too difficult to try to get registered here in Canada. So I just decided that wasn't, wasn't really uh, a viable option. Um, I always was a storyteller. At the age of seven, I'd sit, we had, you know, cooked school lunches in England and we'd all be sitting at the table and every day I'd tell the next episode in the ongoing series to my, to my friends, you know, and they'd all be, come on, tell us the next episode, you know, what's happening now in the story. And, and I started writing poetry when I was about 10, had a couple published in an anthology, 12 or something. Um, and then that took a back seat and the art side of it. Well, I was one of the kids that could not do art at school. I was, absolute failure in the art class whatever but I always wished I could I just used to do collage and stuff to kind of mm -hmm. express myself visually because I love that absolutely love it um so I was super excited when I finally found um Nancy Lynn Hughes who's who's an amazing teacher here in Calgary um and she had classes that I could get to and it was just amazing and I started reading book after book and YouTube video and going oh my god you can learn this mm -hmm. But you can absolutely learn to do stuff. And, and I'm, I'm kind of going through a little phase at the moment where I'm like, oh, I'm not sure. I want to do something slightly different art-wise. I'm not quite sure what. Um, but I've just started a 30-day sketchbook challenge on Instagram. So I'm excited because I mm -hmm. think, well, that gives me uh, a, an option to play and just experiment. Because mostly I like to have a reason to do things. So I tended to make art if there was a show I could enter or right. something. I mean, if, if I've got no reason to make it, I don't. 
<laughs> so so uh, little little online challenges are good. Um, the writing, well, yeah, that's hard. And I'm working on another novel, and that's really hard. I'm trying to figure out a process that works for me of how to take a novel from a sort of really random NaNoWriMo messy mm-hmm. draft and turn it into a finished thing. But it's starting to feel like really fun. So that's yeah. the benefit for me personally of what's happened is that I've got an extended period of time at home, which I never usually get. Yeah. So I'm, I'm one of the ones very fortunate. I'm, I'm aware that other people are suffering massively, but for me, this lockdown has actually had a lot of benefits. Yeah. I think it has for many people and even like the challenges, you know, we've had some challenges in our household of finances changing and all this stuff, but there's still a huge list of positives that have come from it as well. Mm. I, don't th- I don't think anything is ever black or white, right? Mm. Okay, so before we wrap up into the final five questions, uh, what is the sort of newest book that you have out there? How can people find you? Oh, well, the newest book I have out is called Explode, Poetry for Activists. And it's only short, it's about 50 pages. So it's got poetry and then black and white illustrations taken from my original art. And the idea of it is... I think to, to help us feel the climate grief and, and our fear and distress about what's happening to the planet, to, to feel that sadness and anger and fear. And then also the other half of the poems are about how, how beautiful the world is and how wonderful life is. And so it's, it's designed just to help because I think, I think we need that kind of input, yeah. something to help us look at what's happening and, um, climate grief is a real thing and you need resources so it's supposed to be helping you know inspire people and I actually I love playing with words and pictures and I spent hours and hours building my websites I have two websites CassandraArnold.com uh, for writing mainly and CassandraArnoldArt.com uh, with my art so you can find me if you want to find my books on Amazon you actually need to put Cassandra Arnold and then the name of the book, really. <laughs> um, we'll otherwise, you all of doesn't find it. But um, yeah, we'll link to all of them in the show notes. Don't worry. Fantastic. Yeah. Okay. So the final five. What are some of the things or projects that get you fired up in a good way? Haha. <laughs> <laughs> well, try to get more involved as an activist personally to try to fight against the climate emergency. Um, and well, yeah, building websites, making books, particularly laying out art and words and I, I just get lost in that I realize yeah. later I'll, I'll wake look up and go oh my god I've just sat here for like four hours and it's just flown past yeah oh I love it what um is one of the most inspiring books or books that you have read in the past few years okay I'm going to give you categories okay health Mm-hmm. Um, Delay Don't Deny by Jim Stevens. It's about intermittent fasting. I discovered intermittent fasting about 20 months ago and it absolutely transformed my life. And I just love it. Absolutely love it. I just, it, you know, I lost all that extra weight. I feel brilliant. It's just but solved, it's, it's, solved forever. I don't have to ever worry again about what I eat. See, I, I worried eat anything. Inter- I, I just worried that intermittent fasting was another diet. No, it does no? so much more. It does so much more. Jim Stevens, Delay Don't Deny. You can put it in the show yeah. notes. People can okay. go. I, I would send people to her. She has an amazing podcast. 
intermittent fasting stories, although different people have been doing it in their stories. And um, I think medically it's transformative. Yeah. I really believe this. I mean, the science behind it is okay. so strong. So does that one help? And the other health one was um, move your DNA by Katie Bowman, which is just like, we need to move any and all movement, but we need to move. There you go. And then, and then the, Oh my God, for hope for the world, there's a fantastic book called Wilding by Isabella Tree and they returning their English farm to nature. I read, I listened to the audiobook. She read it. It was absolutely amazing. Oh, they, cool. They couldn't make money farming traditionally anymore and they're just letting that land rewild and it's extraordinarily amazingly fantastic what happens. Yeah. All the animals that come back. They've got storks nesting in England for the first time since like the 1600s now. Oh, on wow. And then there's... um. This book, The Worst Journey in the World by Apsley Cherry Garrard. It's the story of um, Scott's expedition, you know, how he died trying to get to the South Pole. Yep. And this book is just mind-boggling. It is, and I tell you what, if you're struggling in your life, you listen to that book, you're just like, yep, I have no problems whatsoever. Like yeah. what these guys went through. I mean, it was 20 hours of audiobook or something, I mean, but... I mean, hilarious. They're so British. They, they, they take away all the things they don't need. So they're only going to take the essential stuff with them for the last part. And they yeah. pack their pajamas. <laughs> I mean, you're just like, what? <laughs> you know? yeah. But that book is just amazing. And then um, the most useful uh, kind of self-help book, I read a lot of them, and a lot of them are very unmemorable, to be honest. But this one, um, Growing Gills, strange title, um, by Jessica Abel. Uh, and it's all about creative focus and um, how to deal with things. I, I think that's a really good one. And she just did a kind of Facebook book club thing about it. Yeah. I mean, she obviously has a, a, a coaching course, you know, on a, on a higher level. But that book I felt was really useful. And I keep reading stuff like that. I yeah. think it's just like it's just like showering or whatever. I mean, yeah. you, you need to keep having it input of of inspirational stuff and positive thinking and and strategies it's just yeah. fun and then when i when i um oh yeah okay so books are one of my go-to strategies for handling stress that's the yeah. next question but when i'm handling stress me i watch like uh, a crazy movie or i read a novel preferably with dragons in it and mm. i eat chocolate and you know I, I i just go to this other place for a few hours and and just come back kind of yeah. renewed those are the kind of books i want to write actually books that people can go into that world and come back renewed that's my my wish and the other the other um well working with dr that borders i learned but kind of like well is anybody going to die because of this decision and most of the time in ordinary life the answers were no the other thing i do is i ask myself am i going to remember this on my deathbed yeah and so far the answer's never been yes and then I'm like, well, am I actually going to even be thinking about this probably in 10 years' time? Mm, probably not. Five years? Mm, very unlikely. A year? Yeah, you know, if I feel I'm mucked up, I might still be thinking about it a bit. But, you know, I just kind of, it just yeah. brings it right back to how important is this decision actually? You know, and usually the answer is, well, you know that um, feel the fear and do it anyway thing. You know, it'll be a different outcome but yeah. not necessarily worse. And I, I just kind of, I often think about what's the worst that could happen. And then I kind of make a plan for that. Yeah. Knowing that it probably won't. But if I think, well, what's the worst that could happen? Could I handle that? Yes, I could. Okay, fine. Then I'm good to go. Yeah. 
That's great. What is the best life lesson you've learned or advice that you've been given? There's a wonderful art teacher online called Tara Lever, and she just says over and over, kindness is the answer for everything. And more and more, I think she's right. I wasn't raised with kindness as an important value. You know, I was raised with achievement and, you know, get out there and do stuff, and, and, and which clearly I enjoy <laughs> and clearly I've done. Um, but more and more, I think, true, kindness to yourself um, is, is actually really important. And, and I guess I also just said that thing about the deathbed, which is, you know, a really good life lesson, I think, you know, mm -hmm. is this really going to matter long term? No. Yeah. And the final question, Cassandra, is what does it mean to you to live your best life? Do people on your podcast actually seriously answer that? Because I, I, I read that one and I'm like, uh, I completely have no idea what to say to that. But it's not for anyone else, uh, but for you, right? I know, I know, but I guess, well, I'm in my mid sixties now and I feel like I have done a lot and achieved a lot. I, I think it's just staying open, staying open to experiences and open to what comes. Almost all the amazing things that have happened in my life have just come. They just happen. I mean, but I think your, your mind is looking for things. If you have an intention, then, then the opportunities open up. You notice them in a way that you don't. So it's sort of like now I'm like, wow, there is so much available to me that, that is just inspiring and so many people you know all the things online even for free i mean it's just mind-boggling i could i could be learning all day every day so i think for me to live my best life is just yeah it's like get kinder focus on kindness and and keep trying new things there you go i love it well thank you so much for joining me on the podcast thank you that was absolutely wonderful <laughs>